Hey, this is Stephen, and I want to welcome you or welcome you back to the Grove Church Podcast. For more information or to find more resources like this one, be sure to visit us at grove.org. Thanks for listening, and I hope the following message is encouraging and meaningful to your life. Welcome to the Grove. If you're just now joining us, we're so glad that you joined us for our third and final week of our series, Rules of Engagement. My name is Ali Shulman. And last week, I made a list challenged by my husband of all of the difficult conversations I have had in the last two weeks, everything from a political conversation to a heated debate over what we were gonna eat for dinner. I made a very long list. And what I realized at the end of that list was how disproportionately long it was. It feels like week after week, we are having more difficult conversations than ever. Certainly 2020 and this pandemic and all the time that we've spent together and all the news that we're trying to process has led to lots of tough conversations. And that's exactly why we're doing this series, why we're wrapping it up today, is to figure out how do we engage? How do we have these difficult conversations? They're coming our way, so how do we know best how to prepare for them? And so over the last two weeks, we've given some rules, some advice on how to approach these tough conversations. The first one, first week, we talked about this idea of walking into the room, not the ring. It was about preparing for the conversation with the right goal in mind. So often in our conversations, we are aiming to win. That's how we go into anything in our lives mostly, and that's true of conversations too. But the real answer of how to have tough conversations, productive, meaningful conversations, is that you need to drop that attitude and instead take on an attitude where you are acting as the host in a conversation, where it's like people are at your home and you're welcoming them into a room, not a boxing ring. And then last week, we talked about what to do when you're in the middle of a really hard conversation. You know that moment when Everything's fine, everyone's talking normally, normal pace, normal volume, normal tone, and then all of a sudden, the conversation changes really quickly, and it starts to feel a little tense, and you start to get a little nervous. You know that moment. The heat starts to rise, and we talked about what to do in that moment. We said, focus on the link, not the distance, meaning, that in those moments, it is pretty common for us to focus on agreement. That's what we want out of a conversation. Not only do we want to win, but we want to agree with the person across the table from us. We want to either reel them in and pull them to our side, or we will aggressively leap forward and try to go to their side and then pull them back. We want agreement, some type of compromise. But when conversations get heated and emotions are high, you have to let go of that goal. You have to instead shift. Instead of focusing on the distance between you, between your opinion and the other person's opinion, you need to instead focus on the relationship, on empathy and understanding the other person. You have to shift your goal to be more of one of listening and questioning, to try to de-escalate the situation. And that's how you discover connection with one another. So this week, we're gonna talk about, and we're gonna give a rule about what happens when a conversation goes off the rails. 
when it feels like it's absolutely hopeless and you're not sure what to do about it. But before we get to that, we need to talk about one thing. Because over the last two weeks, we've talked a lot about how you have these conversations. We've focused on the how, and we've given rules to support that. But what we haven't talked about is why. Why do we have conversations that are hard and difficult in the first place? Why do we engage? This is a tough question because, to be honest, for most of us, it'd be much easier just to avoid it. It'd be much easier when someone brings up the upcoming election at the dinner table or tells you that COVID is a, is a conspiracy to just say, pass the dinner rules, please. It'd be much easier to avoid these conversations. And for many of us, we spend most of our time avoiding them. They have a big cost. That's the thing about tough conversations. They cost us a lot. They cost us our physical energy, our emotional energy. Sometimes there's real consequences. Like it might cost you a relationship or even in some cases, a job. Tough conversations risk a lot and they deplete a lot of our resources. So why in the world would we want to engage in tough conversations in the first place? I think there's two reasons. The first is that engagement enhances connection. Engagement enhances connection. And this is what we've talked about the last two weeks. You see, when you choose to engage, you open up this whole opportunity for you to have a deeper relationship with the person across the table from you. You open up the potential for you to gain connection with this person or persons in the room. And on the contrary, when you disengage, when you just try to stay on the surface of a conversation, when you only participate in small talk, you are intentionally choosing to keep that relationship at a really shallow level. It's only by getting into the weeds and having tough conversations about controversial things that you're able to really gain a sense of empathy and engage and connect with the person across from you. You see, it's only by engaging that we get a sense of connection to others. And that sense of connection is so important to us, not just from an emotional standpoint, but physically it's been proven to benefit our health. It generates a sense of belonging in us. We know that humans, when they feel connected to other people, when they feel like they have social support, they just do better in every measurement mental, emotional, physical health, and their well-being and their productivity. Everything is better when we are connected. So that's the first reason that we engage, is that engagement enhances your connection. It gives you the opportunity to have deeper and more meaningful connections. So then that brings us to reason number two. Why do we engage in tough conversations? And this is the reason we haven't talked a lot about. Reason number two is that engagement deepens wisdom. Engagement deepens wisdom. There's this great analogy about dialogue that I love. 
and it's called a pool of meaning. So follow me here. A pool of meaning is this idea that all throughout your life and all throughout my life, we go about collecting experiences and opinions and beliefs, and we put it all together throughout our lives into this pool of meaning, to this individual pool. And it is from this individual pool of meaning that we make all of our life's decisions. That pool of meaning dictates our behavior. So for example, let's say you got into a pretty bad car accident when you were 16. It was pretty traumatic, it was your fault, and it really stuck with you. And as you went through your life, not only that experience, but also the research that you read afterwards or the opinions that you heard, that got put into this pool of meaning about what you thought about driving, about the driving age, and those things start to affect your decisions. It might change the way that you teach your kids how to drive, or it might change the way that you drove for a long time afterwards. It might change the way of how you think about cars and what's appropriate and what's the most important thing in a car. It might make you think that the legal age of driving should be raised. All of that comes into your pool of meaning and all those decisions get pulled out of that individual pool of meaning. You see, that, that individual pool of meaning dictates your behavior. And all of this would be fine and good if we lived individual lives. Then we could go around and just collect all of our things and put them into our pool of meaning and make decisions based on them, whatever we thought were the wisest choices. And we wouldn't have to care about anyone else's pools of meaning. But that's not how society works. And maybe now, more than ever, we're beginning to realize that. Because you see what happened is thousands of years ago, thousands and thousands of years ago, practically from our existence, humans decided or gravitated towards a group living situation. We live in groups. That's literally how our world works. It starts with these little concentric circles, maybe starting with the family, and then you belong to a family, and then you belong to maybe your neighborhood, and then you belong to your city, and then you belong to your state. And for as long as we can remember, we've lived in groups. There's a lot of good reasons for that, right? It's our physical safety, it's our social safety, it's our emotional safety. But living in groups, living in communities, also means that your decisions affect me, and my decisions affect you. In other words, I have to care about your pool of meaning because eventually it will affect me. So the question maybe of all time is how do we make better decisions collectively? that benefit the most people? How do we live in this group society and make decisions that help people, maybe the most people, maybe it helps certain people the most? How do we go about that decision-making process? In other words, how do we take into account everyone's pool of meaning? You see, we have to engage in a concept called collective wisdom an ancient concept called collective wisdom. Wisdom, most simply put, is a body of knowledge and principles that develop within a society or a period. It's this idea of knowledge and principles combined. And when I talk about principles, what I mean 
our principles come from the assessment and the judgment of that knowledge and even the application, right? So you might know that cars can be dangerous or that there is something about how cars, you could get in a car crash and all the statistics, but your wisdom is when you take that and you apply a principle to it, as in you make certain decisions when you're in that car because of all the knowledge that you have gained and then applying it back to life. So that's what wisdom is, that sense of application and assessment of that knowledge. Now, each pool of wisdom, each individual pool of meaning, generates wisdom. But here's the thing. When they're poured together, when they're poured into this pool, the shared pool of meaning, that's when you get collective wisdom. And when that pool is deep, when it is full of as many people's pools of meaning that they can, they can manage, that's when we make better decisions. So I'll say that again. Collective wisdom is this idea of taking everybody's individual pools of meaning, all of their life experiences and their opinions and their beliefs, and how that has generated wisdom in their own life, and then you pour them into a shared pool, a pool that then we, as a community, as a city, as a neighborhood, as a family, can make better decisions from. Now, there are some conditions to this shared pool of meaning situation. And one of the main conditions that scientists and social researchers point out is that in order for collective wisdom to work, it has to be free-flowing. In other words, there cannot be people who withhold their individual opinions or those who feel aggressive and want to pour their whole pool of meaning into the bowl and not let anyone else's in. It has to be free-flowing. So let me give you an example. We've all been in meetings where uh, someone has decided that they want to be the main speaker in the room. No one knew that when they walked in, but as soon as they walked in, this person's feeling a little aggressive, they have a lot to say, and they just start talking. And you notice there's a shift in the room when they start talking and people start getting a little afraid. And then those people who were gonna speak up start to hold their tongue and be like, this isn't worth it. And what you end up with is this one person pouring their entire pool of meaning into the shared pool but no one else pours theirs. And that's how you get really smart people making really dumb decisions. Because if that shared pool isn't deep enough, if it doesn't include a variety of diverse opinions, then we, as a family, as a neighborhood, as a church, as a community, can't make wise decisions together. To create that deep pool of meaning, we all have to contribute. We all have to engage. Even in tough conversations. Maybe especially in tough conversations. Because the reason that those conversations are tough is because the topic, whatever they center around, is sensitive or controversial that it's not an easy answer. And so in order to solve the world's problems, in order to solve our problems, 
we have to be willing to pour our individual pool of meaning into the shared bowl. That's how we're going to solve these problems. That's why engagement deepens, literally deepens, our collective wisdom. So those are the two reasons that we choose to engage. First is that engagement enhances our connection with one another. The second is that engagement deepens our collective wisdom. But what do you do when you're in the middle of a conversation, a middle of a conversation, and you feel like connection and wisdom, both of those things are at risk. What do you do when passions run high? When all of a sudden someone is lobbing personal insults and attacks towards you, or you find yourself doing the same, or you're sitting on the edge of the conversation, you know that person just said something they're definitely going to regret tomorrow. What do you do when information isn't able to freely flow? When you sense someone withdrawing or holding back or getting angry or a biting mark of sarcasm makes someone quiet? What do you do when there's no attempt at sharing information? What if the conversation gets so off the rails that we risk losing a relationship and we in no way are contributing to that pool of collective wisdom? And here's where the third rule comes in our third and final rule. Walk away when you can't save the day. Walk away when you can't save the day. Some situations, some conversations, even some people are worth walking away from. Sometimes that's temporary for a short time and sometimes it's for a long time. Now, a word of caution. This is not a reason to disengage because I know you conflict avoiders out there are like, great, I'm gonna walk away from everything. Perfect, it's a rule. But that's not what I said. Notice what I said. I said, walk away when you can't save the day. In other words, when you've gotten to a place where connection and wisdom are so at risk, where there's no way you're gonna reach either of those goals, that's when you can make the choice to walk away. And over the last two weeks, we've given you advice about how to engage in those difficult conversations because you can get difficult conversations back on track even when they get heated. You can change your attitude and change your tactic and your strategy in the middle of the conversation in order to de-escalate it. But if you've shifted your attitude, if you drop the attitude of meaning, if you're, if you're in a place where you've shifted from agreement to understanding, you're asking lots of questions, you're trying to empathize, and you still notice that either you or the person you're talking to is acting from a threatened place, if you notice that connection and wisdom are never places you're gonna get to, walking away might be the best answer. It might be the wisest choice. Because deepening wisdom and enhancing connection is not gonna happen in a prolonged, volatile situation. You're not gonna be able to accomplish that goal 
if the conversation continues to feel tense and heated in a way that threatens either the person across from you or threatens you. And some of us are really averse to walking away. We feel like it's giving up. It's giving up on the conversation. Or you might be of the variety that thinks, man, if I just keep talking, then they'll talk some sense into them. Maybe they'll realize it. Maybe they'll change their mind. And so you just keep going. Some of us don't want to walk away because we're either really hopeful that this will turn around or convinced, or we just don't want to give up. But I think scripturally, there's a lot of evidence that points to when walking away might be the wisest choice you make. I think about two stories, and we're gonna use two examples this morning. The first one is way back in the first book of the Bible in Genesis, and it's a story of Abram and Lot. We call Abram Abraham a lot, but this was before God changed his name. You see, Abram still had a covenant with God, and he had become very wealthy in this time. And he had a nephew named Lot who he had kind of adopted into the family, and Lot was treated as one of his sons. And as their wealth grew and as their flocks grew, their herdsmen started to quarrel. They started to argue amongst each other, and it created quite a conflict to the point where Abram brings Lot over and says, look, we're brethren. We're relatives. Let's not quarrel over this. You go to the north, and I'll go to the south. Or you go to the south, and I'll go to the north. In other words, let's separate. Let's walk away. And Robert Alter, who's a famous commentator and translator of the Bible, says that Abram's language was very polite. It was very measured. It had no sense of tension. It didn't come from a threatening place of, well, I'm just done with you. It didn't have that sense. It had this sense of, we have tried to reach an agreement. And what I'm recognizing here is that if we continue our relationship as relatives, we could lose it. And obviously they weren't able to come to some type of agreement, some type of deepening wisdom about how to navigate the situation. And so Abram suggests he walks away. Another story is fast forward into the New Testament with Paul and Barnabas. So Paul and Barnabas had been on this incredible missionary journey together. You can imagine that was very exciting. The church had just started, it was very informal, and Paul had taken Barnabas with him for this first missionary journey to go out to all these cities in Asia Minor and preach the gospel, to teach them about this rabbi called Jesus. And he had taken Barnabas with him this whole journey and they had, they had ministered together. They'd even gone to Jerusalem and testified in front of what turned out to be kind of these church fathers and, and they testified in front of them about how Gentiles could be converted. They shared a lot of opinions together, Barnabas and Paul. From what we can tell, they must have been really good friends. And more importantly, they were partners in this mission together. But there comes a point after they come back from Jerusalem and Paul is excited and wants to do another journey and he suggests to Barnabas, hey, let's go do it again. Let's go back to all the cities that we visited, all of them, and let's go preach the gospel again. Let's go check on them. And you can just sense Paul's enthusiasm in the middle of this. 
And Barnabas suggests that they bring a guy named John Mark or Mark. We don't know who John Mark exactly was, maybe a, a cousin of his that's been suggested of Barnabas's. But Mark is brought into the equation. And as soon as he is, Paul says, oh, hold up. Because you see, what Mark had done is that Mark had abandoned them on the first missionary journey. We don't know the details, but somehow he had left them in the middle of that journey. And Paul was not very forgiving. And so it says in Acts that there arose between Barnabas and Paul a sharp disagreement. They argued. Paul didn't want Mark to come. He didn't think he was worth it. And Barnabas felt really strongly that Mark should come. And so the decision was made, either by Paul or by both Barnabas and Paul, that they would go their separate ways. Paul said, look, I'll take a guy named Silas, you take Mark, and we'll split it. We'll split this journey. Paul looked at the situation. He looked at what was at risk. He saw that there was no way that they could come out of this with a wise choice of how to proceed. And maybe he even looked at it and said, this is risking my relationship with Barnabas. It's not worth it. He looked at the situation and he decided that it was better to walk away. You know what I find is so interesting about both these stories, both Abraham and Paul? They both come back. They both return. You see, Lot gets into a bunch of trouble and gets captured by a foreign king. Abram commandeers an army and, and rescues him and takes him back into the fold. We don't know exactly what happens with Paul and Barnabas, except that Paul writes a letter to Timothy later and asks Timothy to bring Mark with him. Something had changed. Something had changed in the way that Paul thought about Mark in the way that Paul acknowledged Mark's ministry. Paul didn't hold this grudge or get rid of this relationship forever. They both came back. What I find is so interesting is that walking away in those separate moments enabled them to save the relationship. It enabled them to save the relationship and to move forward and make wiser choices. And that way, sometimes walking away, you can walk away to save the day. It's a way to preserve the wisdom and relationships that you have. And it won't be very often, and it won't be many people. But I think what we can learn from scripture is that walking away is often not the final note of a conversation or of a relationship, that there is always opportunity to circle back around, to return to those tough conversations, to mend the relationships in your life, even if it started with a place of walking away. You see, this summer, in the last three weeks, we've been talking about having tough conversations. And I know that you're having them. You're having them right now 
at your family's vacation, you're having them on the dock of a lake house, you're having them by your pools, they're having them on the walks that you take with your neighbor. You're having them within your own families, with your kids, with your mom, with your grandpa. And those tough conversations have always been something that was easier to avoid. But I've been praying for you, we've been praying for you here these last three weeks. And we'll continue to pray even as this sermon series ends. Because I think we have a chance through these tough conversations, through working our way through them, to not only deepen connection, but also enhance wisdom. So here's my prayer for you. I pray that you engage. When tough conversations come up, when that moment of tension arises, I hope you don't slink back from it. I hope you don't ask to pass the dinner rolls. I hope that you choose to engage. I hope that you see yourself as host, as a person who is offering hospitality in this situation and in this conversation. I hope that you drop the attitude of winning. I hope that you become wizards at sensing when conversations are going off the rails and you can reorient and shift them so that it's focused on empathy and not on agreement. And finally, I pray for you that you have the courage and the kindness to walk away when you know you can't save the connection and the wisdom of that conversation. But also, when possible, I pray that you return. I pray that you return to those tough conversations, that you roll up your sleeves and you prepare to dig in, that you find good conversation partners, people that you trust and want to engage with, that you are willing to do the work. Because here is my belief, and I hold it dearly, Connection and wisdom are what is going to save us. Out of all this divisiveness, out of all the tension that we feel, out of the messiest problems we can face, it is by connecting with each other and using that pool of collective wisdom that we are going to be able to not only solve the problems of the world, but to see God in each other and how God is working through that wisdom to bring his kingdom home. We all have tasks to do. We all have a job to do in this kingdom. But what if yours today started by engaging with one person who you've been scared or fearful or just avoiding? What if that was your kingdom task today? Will you pray with me? Holy and precious Lord, who is the giver of all good things, who is the source of all wisdom, who gives us life, who gives us hope. Lord, thank you for the ability to be in conversation and relationship with one another. Lord, we pray over the conversations that we will have today, tomorrow, next week, and this whole season. Lord, that we can be the start of a new attitude of how to approach relationship, of how to approach problem solving. 
Lord, all of this rests in your hands because ultimately we are yours and this world is yours. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Dallas area, we would love for you to visit us. For directions, service times, and more info, visit us at grove.org.